You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Okta discloses a data exposure incident. Cisco works to fix a zero day. DPRK threat actors pose as IT workers. The Five Eyes warns of AI-enabled Chinese espionage. Job posting as fish bait. The risk of first-party fraud. Activists trouble humanitarian organizations with nuisance attacks. Content moderation during wartime. Malek Ben Salem from Accenture describes code models. Our guest is Joe Oregon from CISA, discussing the tabletop exercise that CISA, the NFL, and local partners conducted in preparation for the next Super Bowl. And the International Criminal Court confirms that it sustained a cyber espionage incident. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire Intel briefing for Monday, October 23rd, 2023. Identity and access management company Okta has disclosed a data breach affecting some of the company's customers. The company stated... The threat actor was able to view files uploaded by certain Okta customers as part of recent support cases. It should be noted that the Okta support case management system is separate from the production Okta service, which is fully operational and has not been impacted. In addition, the Auth0 CIC case management system is not impacted by this incident. Krebs on Security notes that it appears the hackers responsible had access to Okta's support platform for at least two weeks before the company fully contained the intrusion. Cisco has disclosed a new zero-day vulnerability that was used to deploy malware on iOS XE devices compromised by another zero-day the company disclosed last week, bleeping computer reports. According to data from Census, As of October 18th, nearly 42,000 Cisco devices had been compromised by the back door, though that number is steadily falling. Cisco said in an update on Friday that fixes for both vulnerabilities are estimated to be available on October 22nd. 
The FBI has issued a public service announcement offering guidance to the international community, the private sector, and the public to better understand and guard against the inadvertent recruitment, hiring, and facilitation of North Korean IT workers. The Bureau notes that the hiring or supporting of DPRK IT workers continues to pose many risks, ranging from theft of intellectual property, data, and funds, to reputational harm and legal consequences, including sanctions under U.S., ROK, and United Nations authorities. In an unprecedented joint call by Five Eyes counterintelligence leaders last Tuesday, the officials called out Beijing for what they characterized as theft of intellectual property on an unprecedented scale. The Five Eyes, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, the United Kingdom, and the United States, called on industry and universities to help counter this threat of Chinese espionage. This espionage is nothing new, but what the Five Eyes find particularly unsettling is the use of artificial intelligence in these campaigns. AI can amplify and augment an already serious threat. The Five Eyes' counterintelligence leads have been unusually open in their assessment of the Chinese espionage threat. They took their concerns to the broader public in a joint appearance on CBS News's 60 Minutes yesterday evening. They clearly want as many people to get the message as possible. With Secure is tracking a cluster of Vietnamese cybercriminal groups that are using phony job postings to distribute malware-laden documents. The researchers say the With Secure detection and response team detected and identified multiple Darkgate malware infection attempts against With Secure managed detection and response customers in the U.S., U.K., and India. It rapidly became apparent that the lure documents and targeting were very similar to recent ducktail info-stealer campaigns, and it was possible to pivot through open-source data from the Darkgate campaign to multiple other info-stealers, which are very likely being used by the same actor or group. The criminals are primarily interested in stealing information and hijacking Facebook business accounts. SoCure has published a report finding that first-party fraud costs U.S. financial institutions more than $100 billion per year. First-party fraud sounds exotic, but it's just fraud where those who commit it use their own identity. Additionally, the survey found that more than one in three Americans admit to committing first-party fraud themselves. The researchers explain this includes requesting a refund on an online purchase by falsely claiming that a delivery has been lost, choosing not to pay off credit card bills indefinitely, making a purchase through a buy-now-pay-later loan, or maxing out a credit card with no intention of paying it off, or disputing a legitimate financial transaction. Pro-Hamas, or at least anti-Israeli hacktivists, disrupted some online services in an unspecified cyber attack against Tel Aviv's Sheba Medical Center at Tel Hashomer. The hospital took itself offline and reverted to manual operations, but patient care has continued. The Jerusalem Post reports that the Israeli health ministry has disconnected several other hospitals from the Internet as a precautionary measure. The Jerusalem Post also reports that the website of the Israeli Shevra Kadisha, Jewish Burial Society, was defaced Saturday with anti-Semitic slurs and images. These incidents appear to be instances of a larger trend, it's important to note that Palestinian as well as Israeli organizations have been affected. 
The Wall Street Journal reports that humanitarian organizations serving people on both sides of the conflict have increasingly come under hacktivist attack. The European Commission is waiting for a satisfactory response from X, TikTok, and Meta to allegations that they're out of compliance with the anti-disinformation and anti-hate speech provisions of the EU's Digital Services Act. The European Commission's inquiries are directed principally against disinformation and hate speech aligned with Hamas. But content moderation, ineffectual as it may have been, has apparently had adverse effects on the Palestinian population in Gaza. Wired describes some of the ways in which moderation amounts to shadow banning. Reports say that it can make it difficult for Palestinians to share warnings, information about basic necessities, and personal news concerning family members. Eastern Europe and the Middle East aren't the only regions where conflict is outrunning platforms' content moderation capabilities. Bellingcat describes how Hindu nationalists are taking advantage of YouTube's art tracks auto-generation functionality to produce Hindutva pop. The genre is associated, Bellingcat says, with incitement to violence against Muslims and with calls for Muslim expulsion from India. Content moderation has remained notoriously labor-intensive and difficult. It becomes more so as people determined to communicate come up with code words, slang, typographic substitutions, and the like. Their hope is to slip past automated gatekeepers. The Washington Post has an account of how, for better or for worse, pro-Palestinian social media users are employing these types of measures to circumvent platforms' content moderation. And finally, TechCrunch reports that the International Criminal Court has confirmed that a cyber attack it sustained last month was indeed cyber espionage. The ICC said the attack can therefore be interpreted as a serious attempt to undermine the court's mandate. It looks like a government-sponsored operation. The ICC hasn't determined what government is behind the attack, but it's almost certainly Russia— Moscow has been determinedly hostile to the court since the ICC issued a warrant for President Putin's arrest. Russia retaliated by issuing its own arrest warrants for the court's president, deputy, chief prosecutor, and one judge. The ICC expects to be the target of disinformation campaigns designed to destroy its legitimacy. It views September's cyber espionage as preparatory work for that disinformation. The ICC has briefly outlined the steps it's taken to mitigate the attack and says that Dutch police are investigating. Coming up after the break, Malek Ben Salem from Accenture describes code models. Our guest is Joe Oregon from CISA discussing the tabletop exercise that CISA, the NFL, and local partners conducted in preparation for the next Super Bowl. Stay with us. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. 
Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Joseph Oregon is Chief of Cybersecurity for CISA Region 9, where they recently collaborated with security professionals from the NFL, as well as local partners for a tabletop exercise exploring potential vulnerabilities around this season's Super Bowl. For Joseph Oregon, it's a prime example of the type of partnering that CISA hopes to promote. A tabletop exercise, in a nutshell, it's an informational, kind of a discussion-based walkthrough of different scenarios, and they're created or customized by us, by CISA, to help stakeholders address their roles and responsibilities during a specific incident. So as an example, we may help stakeholders by creating a scenario which helps them walk through how they would respond to a ransomware incident or maybe even an incident response plan or a physical incident at their location. So I take a moment just to, to highlight that these that um, that this resource and the fact that CESA's regional offices and our headquarter elements have decided or have dedicated professionals um, who help craft tabletop exercises for partners is for free, right? And something that a lot of organizations, whether they're public or private, kind of leverage. Um, because it comes with a lot of benefits. We have an actual team that um, will work with organizations that will actually deploy out to a location, help them walk through the scenario. Um, we try to look at it from a humble approach. So we're, we we help facilitate, but we actually um, we take our cues from those partners. So NFL is one of such partners who reached out to CISA um, and because of their involvement with the Super Bowl and 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 other and various events, um, they've partnered with CISA in order to um, kind of put on a tabletop exercise that not only covers what they do um, within the NFL to manage particular incidents, but also to understand what um, private sector and public sector entities in the location of their their event how they manage an incident. So really it's this huge collaboration um, as an example of, of, of private and public sector entities that are coming together and walking through a, um, you know, this tabletop exercise. And to your initial point, um, David, it's with regards to, you know, 
why, you know, why do they approach CISA? And it's more so as looking at as a collaborative, um, a collaborative relationship, right? They're, they're, they, they know that we, um, that we are a government, you know, that we are a government agency and that's, uh, that's the operational lead for federal cybersecurity and national coordination for critical infrastructure, security, and resilience, knowing that they want to make sure that, you know, they're kind of checking the boxes as well and, and kind of understand the processes from a federal government perspective. Um, and then, so they reach out and um, they work with us um, and work with the local partners there to kind of get involved and, and, and provide that assistance or not assistance rather, but provide that awareness of of the events and what they look for as it pertains to security and and um, security scenarios that they can walk through with both public and private sector. What's your message to folks who aren't operating at, at the scale or uh, level of someone like the NFL? You know, a, a, an organization that's in uh, you know one of the fifty states and and perhaps has a, a manufacturing facility or or you know something of, of moderate scale. Uh, think that they may want to reach out and start a relationship with CISA. Uh, is that something that you're looking to encourage? Oh, we encourage it all the time. And the fact that we work we're, for this example that we used earlier with the NFL, we work with um, organizations that vary in all kinds of sizes, whether they're private or public. We work through, you know, through K through 12 and cities and counties. We work with critical infrastructure such as water and wastewater. Um, we work a number of, of state partners as well as private sector partners. So as we look at smaller organizations that are looking to leverage resources that the federal government provides for free. So as in this case, a tabletop exercise, we facilitate those resources and, and to our partner sets across the board. So we heavily encourage our partners, if they're interested, to definitely reach out to the CISA reps that we do have in the field, or they can go to our website at CISA.gov to identify who those points of contact might be in the respective state. I'd like to make a quick note and that we're going into Cyber Awareness Month. Um, so on September 29th today, CISA officially kicks off our 20th Cybersecurity Awareness Month. So throughout October, the month of October, CISA and our cooperative agreement recipients, the National Cybersecurity Alliance, will focus on ways to secure our world. We educate individuals and organizations on how to stay safe online. So this is a collaborative effort between government and industry um, to enhance cybersecurity awareness on a national and global scale. We're trying to um, build off of last year's message that is using strong passwords and password managers, uh, turning on uh, multi-factor authentication, uh, recognizing and reporting phishing, and finally updating software. So we're building off that strong message. And as we look at CISA, what we're, what we're trying to do is help shape behavior um, and, and uh, behavioral change by adopting and improving ongoing cybersecurity habits that reduce risk while online or on a connected device. That's Joseph Oregon, Chief of Cybersecurity for CISA Region 9.
And joining me once again is Malek Ben Salem. She is the Managing Director for Security and Emerging Technology at Accenture. Malek, it's always great to welcome you back. Uh, I want to talk today about uh, code models. There's been a lot of uh, excitement here with uh, AI and and, uh, some of the, the tools that can help people here. Can you unpack this for us here? What are we talking about? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, we've seen over the past year, we've seen uh, lots of large language models being published or announced. Some of those large language models that generate text, they also generate code, right? Uh, Source code, so Java code, Python code, etc. Some are even uh, dedicated to generated code, so they don't generate regular text, but just focused on code. Some of them are open source, others uh, are proprietary. But uh, many of my clients are really interested in deploying, in, at least experimenting with these code models and potentially deploying them um, to help with application development. Uh, and even the numbers that Gartner has published do uh, support that. Um, Gartner Act, for example, expects that 15% of the new applications um, will be automatically generated by AI without any human in the loop in 20, by 2017. And uh, they expect that 30% of enterprises will have implemented an AI augmented development and testing strategy by 2025, so just in two years. But what I wanted to share with the audience today who are considering these code models is, you know, to think through some of the, uh, you know, potential risks and, um, you know, considerations as they select the right code model. So as I mentioned, some of these code models have been trained using open source data. Others have been trained using proprietary data. And so those two different types of training approaches or data sets carry with them, you know, potential liability risks and IP ownership risks. You're probably aware of certain lawsuits going on against certain models where, you know, open source repo contributors are claiming ownership or at least IP, some of IP ownership or copyright infringement of the code that they have contributed to those uh, repos. So that may carry some liability for of the end users of these models, the organizations developing these models. And, and that question of IP ownership is not clear. So does the code generated by... So suppose if you're deploying a code model within your organization, does the code generated by that model, uh, is that owned by you as the organization? Is that owned by the vendor who's providing that code model for you? Or is it owned by the developers who contributed the training data for that model? You know, that's a gray area. Um, so that's that's something to keep in mind. Um I mean, I mean, I'm not discouraging clients to uh, experiment and, and think through their use cases. I think there are tremendous benefits in terms of uh, developer productivity, uh, but I'd like to highlight some of the, of the risks. The other thing I'd like to point out is, you know, definitely there are improvements in efficiency, 
But I think at this point, at least these good models can work well with developers. They're wonderful pair programmers, but I don't think they're ready for completely, uh, you know, generating code on their own. The capability is not there, but also uh, there are security risks associated with that. Um, So it has been shown that um, these models generate code that may work functionally, but carries some security vulnerabilities. And that's not really surprising because it's been trained with code, you know, that's out there in the public, you know, open source code that, you know, carries some, maybe riddled with security vulnerabilities. And, you know, they're mimicking uh, or regenerating those types of vulnerabilities. So if you're considering deploying these code models, I think it's critically to double down on your security scanning processes. Make sure that you, uh, you know, perform, you know, SAS scans, source code scans to discover these types of vulnerabilities. The other thing I'll, uh, you know, to consider is in the long term, I'm sure the performance of these good models will improve in the long term. But something to keep in mind is when new zero days get discovered, probably the time to retrain those code models so that they generate source code that is secure, that is not exploitable through those zero days, is much longer than the time it would take, you know, the security scanning companies, if you will, uh, to be able to detect that type of zero-day attack. So again, that's uh, another consideration uh, to think through as as you're, you know, uh, assessing the value and risk of of the use and deployment of these code, uh, code models. Yeah, it really strikes me as as being, I mean, is it fair to say it's a supply chain risk here? I mean, you think about, I think about open source software and how we've seen examples of, um, you know, people inserting bad things into popular libraries and, and so on and so forth. But, you know, that has the eyes of the community on it where we think about LLMs as being kind of a, a black box here. And it seems to me that's a significant difference. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's, one piece of it, um, that there is a supply chain risk as well, uh, or, or a, you know, in this case, a data poisoning risk if if um, the security vulnerabilities are inserted uh, on purpose. Definitely one risk, and and you know, in other cases, you can you can opt for proprietary or models or models that have been trained with proprietary data. But it's important to understand, you know, the. the the trade-offs, uh, it's important to also compare these models with respect to the, the quality of their output, uh, and they vary significantly, right? They, their performance varies significantly. And luckily, the, there has been some data sets published for benchmarking these models, so, so organizations can do that as part of the due diligence as they're selecting the right code model for their organization. But overall, I think um, what I'll uh, what I'll recommend is use them as pair programmers. Use them for tasks uh, like you know quick code translation or explanation. 
Um, I don't think they're ready for independent code generation. Um, and uh, definitely, you know, focus on your uh, source code security testing and other types of uh, application testing uh, to deploy uh, or to adopt these models safely. Kind of think of them as your your junior partner, right? Exactly, <laughs> someone someone yes. who can help you, but you got to keep an eye on them. Yeah. All right. Yeah, absolutely. All right. All right. Malik Ben Saleb, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at cyberwire at n2k.com. Your feedback helps us ensure we're delivering the information and insights that help keep you a step ahead in the rapidly changing world of cybersecurity. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like The Cyberwire are part of the daily intelligence routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, as well as the critical security teams supporting the Fortune 500 and many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. This episode was produced by Liz Irvin and senior producer Jennifer Iben. Our mixer is Trey Hester, with original music by Elliot Peltzman. The show was written by our editorial staff. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K Cyberwire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us.
And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.